There's always one. Well, if you are remaining in here, uh, go ahead and have your Bibles turned uh, to Matthew chapter 2. One thing I greatly enjoy at Christmas is the Christmas songs. I just think it's fun to come. And like even the songs that we sang today, uh, it's beautiful just singing the Christmas songs as they look forward and celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Shameless plug, uh, Christmas Eve, our 6 p.m. candlelight service. We do lots of Christmas songs, so I encourage you, be here Christmas Eve, not only in the morning service, but also 6 p.m., great time just to celebrate the birth of Christ. And so with that, I thought, so this will be our crowd participation, we're getting you warmed up. Uh, what is your favorite Christmas song? Go ahead, like, what, what, what is it? Oh, Holy Night. Oh, Holy Night. Oh, Come Emmanuel. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Joy to the world. Mary, did you know? Cool. Awesome. Those are great. Those are great. I love, I mean, I love them. Uh, Joy to the world, silent night, holy night, O come Emmanuel. Although, was it, uh, we did like a, we didn't do like the, we, we celebrated one about the three kings coming. I didn't know that one that we sang today. The, the first song you did? It's old one, but I didn't know it. Um, Many of you are familiar with the songs, like we th- or with the song "We Three Kings." Um, many of you are familiar with that. Today, we're actually going to be in the text that that song comes from. Now, interestingly, the song gets some details wrong. Um, we have no idea how many men actually came and, and worshipped Jesus, and likely it was a very large group of people that made quite the impression as they came into Jerusalem. And likely they were not kings, but rather advisors to kings. Uh, So while there are some details that are very likely wrong, there are also many things that the song gets correct. There is a star. Jesus is born king in Bethlehem. The wise men bring gifts, and they come from the east to worship Jesus. And what we're going to see today is that these men serve as an example to us and to all people that the only right response to Jesus is worship. The only acceptable response to knowing who Jesus is, knowing that he's king, king of the world, is to rightly worship him. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. All people from all nations are called to worship Jesus. Jesus is not just the perfect king for for the Jewish nation or any other particular ethnic group. Rather, Jesus is the king that every person in the world needs. And so the main point this morning as we look at this birth narrative in Matthew is that Jesus is the shepherd king who alone is worthy of all worship from all the nations. And so I want to invite you, go ahead and stand this morning, and we're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The D'Angelo's, Michael already read a portion of this, uh, but we're going to read all of verses 1 through 12. Here we go, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the sun or the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, um, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When, the, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. So, Father, we, we come to you now. We come to you in the name of Jesus the name of your son, the one whom you sent to this earth, that he would come as king, as our Christ, as Emmanuel, as the one who is worthy of all worship, the one who will reign for all times, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one whose throne is established forever, who establishes the kingdom of God like a giant mountain on this earth, and the nations will flow to it, for you alone are worthy of all worship. Father, as we look at your text today, as we look at the anticipation of your son who has come and all that he will do, God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. May may our faith grow today as we see what your word, which has been planned far before the birth of Jesus came. Lord, as we come into your word, help us to see the truth and the beauty of your son as king. And Lord, I pray that we all would rejoice exceedingly with great joy as we worship him. And I pray that we would be emboldened, encouraged, and strengthened in our faith to share the gospel knowing not only is Jesus worthy of all nations, but as we share the truth of the gospel, people will believe from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. So may we boldly share knowing that you have a people in this world that you are calling And then when they hear the gospel, they will believe. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we begin today, and we notice that the nations are drawn to the birth of Jesus. Now, if we were to start in the gospel of Luke, Luke shows that the shepherds are the very first people to come and worship Jesus. But when we look into Matthew's account, we see that, no, it's the wise men who are the first to come and worship Jesus. So is this a contradiction? Is this one of those areas that people say, see, the Bible's not accurate? Well, no, not at all. Luke writes about the actual birth of Jesus, the actual day, the actual night that he was born, and that the shepherds are there on that night worshiping Jesus. But Matthew, on the other hand, is giving us details about an event that happened approximately one to two years after Jesus' birth. We know this because later in chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, Herod will have all the children killed two years and younger in the area of Bethlehem. 
So remember, the Gospels are selective biographies on the life of Jesus. They do not include every event in Jesus' life, but selective points in order to make particular points. So Matthew's point is that Jesus is king and the nations have come to worship him. That's what he wants us to see. And so we might say, well, well who, who are these men? So let's give some details about what's happening here in the beginning. Well, as we said, they're, they're likely not actual kings, but they're counselors to kings. They're wealthy, educated men of nobility who advise kings. They were associated with magic and dream interpretations. In fact, when Daniel in the Old Testament and his friends were taken captive to Babylon, they became wise men or magi who who would uh, advise the king. We're told that these men come from the east, likely hundreds of miles, probably from a place like Persia or Babylon, as they've come to Jerusalem. And they might say, well, but why did they come? Well, we're told in verse 2 that they saw a star. Now, there's a lot of debate about what they actually saw, what this star is. Some have said, well, it was a, it was a supernova. Some have said it's a comet. Or possibly there was some planetary alignment between Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. And all of those are possible. However, I think that it makes the most sense to see this star as an angel. And the reason I would say that is because when we're in Revelation, angels are likened to stars that also represent the church. And angels are used by God for divine purposes in communicating to people and doing various workings of God. And being that the star seems to move when they come from Jerusalem and goes to Bethlehem and it appears to reside over the house of Mother Mary and Jesus so that they're not knocking on every door but they go to the house of Mary it seems that something very, very special is happening here. So I would say it's a star, or it's an angel. Now, why a star? How is it that when these men from the east, they see this star, they know that it signals the birth of a great king? Like, like how do they know that? Well, in the book of Numbers, we read about how the king of Moab sought the destruction of all of Israel when they wandered through the wilderness. And so he began to do this by he hired a, a prophet named Balaam, and he brought him, and he was to curse the Israelites. But Balaam, rather than cursing the Israelites, he blessed them three times. And in Numbers chapter 24, 17, and the third blessing that he gives, part of his speech, he says this, A star shall come out of Jacob, out of Israel. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So here we have, we have a king, the king of Moab. He's hoping to destroy Israel. He's going to curse them. But now he hears that one day a mighty king, the star, will rise from Jacob, from Israel, who will destroy all their enemies, including Moab. So the wise men, they, they know this prophecy. How? Very likely they learned it when Israel went into captivity into Babylon. And people like Daniel and his friends who became wise men shared and taught the very word of God, the promises and prophecies of the coming Christ, and so that they would know when the star rises, a king has been born. Now, interestingly, it was believed in this time period, the first century, that a great king would rise from Israel. In fact, the Roman historian Sustonius, this is what he said. 
He said, there has spread over all the Orient, so the East, an old established belief that it was fated at that time within the first century for men coming to Judea to rule or from Judea to rule the world. And then Josephus, the Jewish historian, he said this, at the time of Christ's birth, the Jews believed that one from their country would soon become the ruler of all the habitable earth. So I want you to think about, think for a moment. Remember, gospels are selective biographies to make a particular point. Matthew, as he's introduced the gospel, so or introduced Jesus, he has shown his genealogy in chapter 1, that Jews and Gentiles are a part of the genealogy. He has showed that Jesus is the son of David, whose throne and kingdom will be established forever. He has shown that he is the son of Abraham, who will bless all the nations. And when we come to the end of the gospel, we see that Jesus has all authority. He sends his disciples into all the known world to proclaim the gospel of the king. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the king of the world. And so here in chapter 2, as the nations are now pouring into Bethlehem to worship Jesus, this is exactly how we think the gospel should begin, right? If this is the king, the one we've been waiting for, the one who will rule the world and bless all people, this only makes sense. Matthew's right on track. Everyone's coming now to worship Jesus. And yet now, in Matthew 2, we see that there's a problem. Not everyone is excited that there's a king in Bethlehem. And so we come to the next point. Jesus is rejected by those who receive him. The wise men enter into Jerusalem, and they ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They've traveled hundreds of miles. These men are excited. They're anticipating the seeing of this king, and they're looking for him. And so notice how Herod and all of Jerusalem responds. They're troubled. They're disturbed at this news. Now, if you know much about Herod, he was a cruel and wicked king. He was jealous and suspicious of anyone that would threaten his throne. You see, he was not a Jew. He was not a rightful ruler of God's people. He had been appointed to this position by Rome, and he did everything he could to guard his throne. He drowned his brother-in-law, killed his wife, and even two of his sons to protect his throne. And at his death, he arranged to have distinguished citizens of the, Jewish, um, of, the, of, of, of the Jewish nation arrested and killed just to make sure that there would be mourning on that day. Herod was cruel and merciless king. So it's understandable when you kind of know who he is that he's troubled that the king of the Jews has been born. But we are told that all of Jerusalem is also troubled. This includes the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priests. Now, it's possible that these men, that these religious leaders and all the Jews are troubled because they're going, well, what's this going to do to King Herod? He already freaks out enough and kills people to protect his throne. What's he going to do now? So maybe that's why they're troubled. But I think Matthew wants us to see that the religious leaders, just like Herod, have also rejected Jesus. They are not excited about this king. Now, why do I say that? How do we know that the religious leaders of the day have not just grown apathetic? Because I think Matthew gives us a clue. Do you know the next time 
in the Gospel of Matthew that the title King of the Jews will be used? Chapter 27, all the way at the other end of the Gospel. Pilate, Jesus is arrested. He's brought before Pilate. And Pilate will ask him, are you the king of the Jews. At this point, the religious leaders will incite the crowds that they will begin yelling, crucify him. They would rather have Barabbas, a known um, uh, insurrectionist, released and have Jesus arrested. So Jesus is now arrested. He's to be crucified. And then Pilate places over him, over the cross, a plaque that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So we can't miss what's happening here. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews in chapter 2 foreshadows the crucifixion at the end of the gospel. We're, and we'll look more at the rejection of Jesus next week as, as we get into the rest of chapter 2 and see what Herod does. But we need to understand something here. That the world is comprised of, of two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And what we see is that those in the kingdom of the world hate the kingdom of the God, they hate its king, and they hate its citizens. There is no neutral ground. Apathy is rejection. So we're not able just to go, well, the Pharisees, maybe they're just tired, maybe they're just apathetic, maybe they've just kind of lost focus. No, apathy is rejection. You can have all the religious knowledge in the world, but if you do not bow and believe in Jesus, then you have rejected the rule and the reign of Jesus. Do you know that? If Jesus was to return at this moment, and you've not yet believed in him, then you will forever suffer judgment. There's no neutral ground. We either bow and believe in him, or we have rejected in him. Now, you might be thinking, well, so is the pastor just trying to scare us into the kingdom? Just run into the kingdom so you don't face the judgment? No, I, I wouldn't have you be scared to go in the kingdom. I think when we come to the gospels, we should want the kingdom. We should want this king. So I would hope that you would know Jesus, believe in Jesus, love Jesus, and that you, like the wise men, you'd come and want to, with overflowing joy, worship him. Because Jesus is the king you need. Jesus is the king I need. Jesus is the king that all the nations need. In fact, the Old Testament prophecy that, that is quoted here, it tells us a lot about who King Jesus is. And I think it tells us why we should want him to be king. It informs us why these wise men from the east have come and with overflowing joy, they worship him. And so, so let's look at what that happens here. What we see is in this prophecy is that Jesus is the great and merciful king who perfectly cares for his people. That, that's what we see here. In verse 6, the scribes quote from the Old Testament book. Micah, when answering King Herod. Herod says, where's the Christ to be born? And the religious leaders know exactly where this is. So again, let's not think that they're ignorant. They know the scriptures. It's memorized. They didn't have to go search the scrolls. They know, yeah, we know that's in the book of Micah. Let's go pull that up. Now, Micah is a minor prophet. Just means he didn't write as much as the major prophets did. So, My so Micah also wrote around the same time as Isaiah, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, at this time, God's people are in rebellion to God. They worship God. They oppress the poor. They took advantage of, of widows and children. In fact, listen to how Micah, in chapter 3, this is how he describes 
the religious leaders. So just think about this language and what it tells us about the, about the rulers of the day. Micah says in chapter 3, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like a meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Those are the leaders of the day. Israel's rulers were wicked. They oppressed the people and looked out for their own interests. 700 years later, nothing has changed. Herod is the king, cruel and merciless. 2,000 years later, nothing is different. We still see the rulers, the kings, the presidents, the tyrants of this world. They look out for their own interests, for their own rule, for their own reign. But Micah wants us to know that these wicked kingdoms will not last forever. So in chapter 4, as, as his book progresses, this is what we read in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, so the kingdom of God, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And Micah says, listen, the day is coming when God's kingdom, the mountain, will be established in this world. And like a river flowing upstream, nations will flow into this mountain. And people from all the nations, all the tribes, languages will come and they will worship Jesus. And so you might say, but when's that day going to happen, Micah? How will we know that day has arrived? When will this kingdom, the mountain of God, come upon the earth? Well, Micah tells us in chapter 5, and this is what he says. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The sign that the kingdom of God has come, the mountain of God is on earth, and the nations will begin to flow to it, is that there will be a child who will be born in Bethlehem. And we're told he shall rule in the strength in the power of God, his greatness extends to the earth. He will, be he will be peace for his people. And in verse 4, Micah merges two pictures, two positions. He says he's king and he's shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd king who's extravagant, who's great in power, and he's extravagant in mercy. Now just think, a contrast between who Jesus is and who Herod is of that day. 
Jesus is no dictator. He's no tyrant. He's strong as a lion and yet gentle as a lamb. In fact, we see these realities portrayed all through the life of Jesus. This picture, this prophecy of Micah is now going to be lived out through the life of Jesus. As we look through the gospel of Matthew, we'll see Jesus has power to calm the seas, heal the lame, give sight to the blind, cast out demons, heal lepers. He even forgives sins. And of course, at the end of the gospel, he rises from the dead, conquering sin, death, and Satan. What we have is King Jesus like any other king. He's great in power and extravagant in mercy. And so let me just give you three truths that kind of further, un- that further unpack and flesh out Jesus' power and mercy here. Number one, Jesus takes what is insignificant and makes it significant. I want you to think about that. Look back at verse 6. Look at what verse 6 says about Bethlehem. So Matthew, quoting Micah, says this, that Bethlehem is not the least. That's what Matthew says. But that's not what Micah wrote. When you go back to Micah, which we just read in verse 2, he says, but you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So Micah's point is, we don't even mention Bethlehem when we're talking about the, that land and area and region of Judah. It's too small. Like we talk about the other towns, but I mean, no one's got time for Bethlehem. Micah's point is it's too small, but Matthew modifies the text in order to show the significance of Bethlehem now that Jesus has been born there. He's not contradicting him. The point is, it is absolutely insignificant. But then Jesus comes, and that which was insignificant is no longer insignificant. And we see this all through the life of Jesus. In Jesus, we see how the values of the world are just turned upside down. Like, think about it. When when Jesus begins his ministry, who does he eat with? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus touches lepers. He goes to the woman who has been unclean for 12 years and she's healed. Jesus doesn't surround himself with people of power because he needs to be powerful. Jesus is supremely powerful. Therefore, he doesn't need to defend his throne and thus he is merciful and kind to the weak and the downtrodden. I mean, think about this for a moment. What are the odds of later today you picking up the phone and say, I think I'll call the President of the United States. We'll have a little chit-chat. I'll tell him about my day. He'll tell me about his day. Or or what are the odds of him just going, you know, I need to to call you today. Your name just kind of coming across his desk and him going, Nick Jackson. Well, I haven't called him lately. I should probably check in on him, make sure he's doing well, maybe see if there's anything I can do for him. I mean, it's pretty much not going to happen, right? Why? There's a lot of reasons. One, we're just too insignificant. And I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. He's got a lot more important things to do than necessarily worry about my day, what I did today, when I got up, what I ate. But also, not only that we are insignificant, but we're really just not important enough. And we're not going to advance his position and his power in any of his goals, and not trying to necessarily say anything bad about the president in that way, but 
That's typical of, of our worldly kings and kingdoms. But when we look at the life of Jesus, what do we see? Everyone who comes to him, he has time for him. Blind men on the way to Jericho cry, oh, son of David. Everyone else is like, hey, be quiet. You're blind. Nobody cares about you. And Jesus stops and heals them. Jesus tells the crowds to let their children run to him. Those who are absolutely the most insignificant people in the kingdom. And he says, let them run to me and I will spend time to them. In fact, if you do not come to me like a child, then you have no place in my kingdom, Jesus says. What we need to know is that Jesus is a kind and merciful shepherd. He knows every single one of his sheep. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. And he cares for you. There's no one too small or too insignificant to be ignored by King Jesus. And this actually brings us to our next point. Jesus knows what we need and has the power to provide for us. You see, as the mighty king, the king of infinite power, who rules in the power and might of God, he knows all things. He rules all things. There is nothing outside the control and the rule of Jesus. Which is why, like later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, we'll read this. Jesus says that if we believe in him, we do not need to be anxious about anything. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Are you anxious about things? Notice, this is what Jesus will say in, in chapter 6. He says, you don't need to worry about what you're going to eat, about what you're going to drink, or about clothing. Like, none of your basic needs do you need to worry about at all. Why? Because then he says, look at nature. Look at the birds of the air, and do you notice how every single day Jesus provides for their food? And then he says, look, look at the flowers of the field. Look at them and see how beautiful God clothes them every day. And yet their, their lifespan is so short that tomorrow they'll be burned up. And so what's Jesus' point? His point is, is that if Jesus cares for the birds and the flowers, how much more will he care for those who are in his kingdom? Do you know that truth? If you have trusted in Christ, Jesus knows you and hears you and loves you and cares for you. Jesus delights in hearing your prayers. He delights in taking care of your needs. Do you know that? Now, perhaps you might think, well, that's great that Jesus loves to care for us, but can he actually provide? Does he actually have the power to do so? I mean, good intentions are great, right? But can he deliver? That's, that's really what matters. I can tell you I love you and care for you, and yet that doesn't necessarily take away any anxiety, and it shouldn't, because I can probably meet some of, like, one person's needs in this room. There's no way I can meet all of your needs. I don't even think I could really adequately meet just one of your needs perfectly. And yet Jesus says that he rules in the might and the power of God. And so he shepherds us perfectly. Again, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see how this is played out. That when he turns to the raging seas, he says, peace, be still. And they turn into a calm body of water with a glassy surface, which if you've ever been, um, uh, if you've water skied, that's like the perfect time. And so you can just imagine the Sea of Galilee going from this raging sea 
So now this amazing body of water where every person is like, man, if we could water ski on that right now. They didn't have boats back then to do that, so in case you were wondering. But Jesus is the king who takes a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, something that would feed like the front row. And he feeds thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Like we're told 5,000, and yet that's just the men. So it's easy to go, there's 10 or 15,000 people here with women and children. A few loaves and fish, 12 baskets left over full. Does it again with 4,000 people and have seven baskets full. When asked to pay the temple tax, notice this. When asked to pay the temple tax, Jesus says, sure, no problem. Peter, why don't you go fishing? Go grab a fish, and then when you find that fish, reach inside of it, grab the shekel, and now pay the temple tax for us. Jesus has all the resources. He's never going, oh, man, I forgot my wallet. Nature carries his wallet for him. What we see is that then Jesus goes to the grave of Lazarus. He's been dead for four days. He says, roll the, tomb away, roll the stone away. People are like, no, nah, this is not a good idea. He's been dead. It's going to smell. Jesus doesn't seem to be shaken by this at all. He just stands, and the power of the king says, come out. And something that nothing in all of creation can do is resist the call of the king. And so Lazarus walks out, which would just be amazing to see at that moment. And all the rags and everything that he's been wrapped up in, he walks out. Why? Because Jesus can do all that he commands. He has no limitations placed upon him. So when Matthew says, do not be anxious, not because I'm taking care of you or anyone else is taking care of you, but because we know the king. And when he comes and he cares for his people, we have no needs. Jesus is not just a kind and compassionate king with good intentions. He is infinite in power and loves to mercifully provide for all the needs of his people. And when you doubt that, think about Christmas. Christmas declares this truth, right? Like, like doesn't it? Like, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating that Jesus came to earth to save us from our sins. Why? Because he knows our need, and he has the power to save us. So remember Christmas, when you're filled with those, those anxious moments, and you're going, I just don't know how I can get through the day. Come back to Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate that the God of the universe sees us, knows us, and comes to help us. He sends his son to die on the cross that we could be forgiven, that our sins would be removed as far as the east is from the west. There is nothing that our king cannot do. He has the power to save and the power to keep us. John 10, 28, Jesus says he saves us and no one can snatch us from his hands. He holds us secure. He hears our prayers. He answers our prayer. In Revelation 7, we are told he is the great shepherd who will water his people, give them all that they need, and wipe away every tear from our eyes. Jesus is the shepherd. Just think about that shepherd imagery. But a shepherd who has... A great flock, and yet one of them has wandered off. What does the shepherd do? He goes after that one sheep, and he finds it. Wherever it is, if it's fallen down part of the cliff, he goes down. He gets it. He binds it, 
and he carries it home. That's the care that Jesus, as our King Shepherd, does for you and for me and for everyone in his kingdom. He knows you and he cares for you. And as gentle as a shepherd is with a lamb is how gentle he is with you and me. There is nothing that the world can do to us that King Jesus cannot give us the grace to persevere in. Jesus is mighty in power and extravagant in mercy. This brings us to the third truth. Jesus rules with perfect righteousness and justice forever. So the point and context of Micah is that Jesus is the, the righteous king who's going to overcome all the enemy governments, the wicked governments of this world. The mountain of God, the kingdom of God will be established. It will grow. It will crush all other kingdoms. And the nations, like a river flowing upstream, will flow into it. We must never, ever, ever, ever think that Jesus came to be a king among many kings or a God among many gods. Jesus is the king and the God. And with infinite power, he brings all wicked and rebellious governments to an end. And this is seen all throughout Scripture. Psalm 2, a great psalm. We should all know this psalm. Psalm 2, we read that the kings of the earth, they set themselves up, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. So what we have is like the, the kingdoms of the world, they're gathering together. In their United Nations meeting, and they're saying, all right, how do we overthrow God? What can we do? So they come up with their plan. And like, yes, this is what will work. And then we come to verse 9 of Psalm 2, and he says, Of the king, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There is no power that the world has to overthrow the king. They have no power to overthrow the king. Do you know that? A day is coming when all those who reject the rule of Jesus will be judged. And this isn't because he's a tyrant. We can't just think, oh, so we just have another dictator who's ridding the world of all those who oppose him. No. But like a judge who would punish the evil that comes into his courtroom, so Jesus is the righteous king who will put an end to all wickedness and evil and sin and rebellion in this world. So we don't have a tyrant who's just wiping out the competition. Rather, we have a shepherd and a king who rightfully rules, who will judge all wrongs and then judge them so they will never again be on the earth. Jesus did not leave his throne and glory, enter the world as a baby, be crucified 30 years later, rise from the dead, only to leave the world to wallow in its sin and suffering. No, he's the king who has come to right all wrongs and judge all evils. And we know that we need this, right? Like when you look at the world, we know that not everything is right. You know that evil exists. You know that there's suffering. You know that there's pain. And, and I think I could say, and everyone wants those things to end. And yet we are powerless to make that happen. But King Jesus in his infinite power, has come to establish the perfect kingdom so those who believe in him will experience everlasting joy and peace.
That's what Christmas reminds us of. Christmas reminds us that God knows us and has sent his son to save us. Which then beckons the question, do we know that truth? Do you believe that truth? And so, so Matthew is writing this and telling us, what is the response to this king? Look at the wise men. Just as the wise men come and worship with exceeding joy, so that is how we are to come also. In fact, I would say, if Jesus is the true shepherd king that we read about in Micah, why would we not worship him? Why would we not bow before him? Why would you not want this to be true? So last point, those who worship Jesus overflow with joy. If we look at verse 10, we say, when the wise men, they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like a five-year-old who's unable to contain their great excitement when they walk into the great toy store, like F.A.O. Schwartz, they're just thrilled with joy. Scream with squeals. Squeal with screams? I, I don't know. It sounded different. But upon entering the house, these men, they fall down and worship Jesus with great joy. And so what happens next? They give them all their treasure, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's the point? The wise men teach us how the nations are to respond to the shepherd king. If Jesus is our king, why would we not be overflowing with joy? If he's the one who has established the kingdom of God, why would we not be overfilled with joy? If he's the one who cares for us and has the power to meet our needs, if he's the one who will rid the world of all sin and pain and suffering, why would we not bow before him with overflowing joy? He rules all things. He is great in power and extravagant in mercy. There's nothing that can thwart his rule or take his throne. Overflowing joy is how we worship King Jesus. Just as the rejection of the Jews foreshadows the, the crucifixion of the Jews, or crucifixion of Jesus at the end, so the worship of the wise men here in Matthew 2 foreshadows the worship of the nations when Jesus returns. We have to see that's what Matthew wants us to know. So let me ask you, have you trusted in Jesus? Do you truly know that he's the shepherd king, mighty in power and extravagant in mercy? Have you believed in him? Remember, there's no neutrality. If you say, not yet, again, we're not forcing you into the kingdom, but just know the reality is if you've not bowed and believed, then you've rejected and rebelled. There's no other ground. Have you trusted in Christ? Believe in Jesus today. Experience the joy of knowing the king. But I think Matthew, he does more than simply instruct us on how we ought to worship Jesus. But he also emboldens us to share the gospel of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the answer to all people in all places. As we said at the beginning, Jesus is not just an ethnic king for a particular people. He's the king that everyone in the world needs. And when the gospel is proclaimed, there will be people who believe and worship Jesus. The whole Bible is writing about that. We already see the truth in the genealogy, how the nations are entering into the line of Christ. And we are told that as, the name, as his name goes forth, people from every tribe, 
tongue, nation, and language will worship Jesus. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the nations have come to worship the gospel. At the end of Matthew's gospel, the, the disciples are told, go to all the nations. So in the beginning, come, worship Jesus. At the end, go and tell the world about Jesus. Do you see it? Like it's, he's not hiding it. Come, worship Jesus, go tell about Jesus. At the end of, of the story in Revelation, we're all gathered around the throne forever to worship Jesus. Christmas is a reminder that the world has been given the greatest gift. It's Jesus Christ, the shepherd king. We need to read and study God's word daily that we just be filled and reminded with the truth. This is our king. And let us boldly share the gospel with our neighbors and the nations because we know they will believe. Some will reject. We see that here. Herod rejects. Religious leaders reject Jesus. And yet we know from the gospels, from the apostles, or from the, from the book of Acts, from the letters, Revelation, the day is coming when the throne will be surrounded by people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Jesus is the shepherd king, mighty in power, extravagant in mercy. He alone is worthy of all worship from all nations. So let us pray and let us celebrate that as we come into communion. Father, Father, we praise you today. Your son is king. Your son is the shepherd king, mighty in power, extravagant in mercy. God, I pray that we'd be reminded just of the joy and the privilege that we have to worship Jesus. And I, I hope that we have been reminded that the joy and the worship we experience now will only increase until the day that Christ returns and we will, with maximum joy, worship Jesus around the throne for all of eternity. I pray that everyone here knows that your son is king. And that we would trust in him today. I pray that no one leaves here uninformed about your son, ignorant about Jesus, or apathetic towards Jesus. I pray that we would all believe in Jesus. May your spirit move in us today that we would do that. And for those of us who know him, God, may we worship you with exceedingly great joy. And may we go and tell others this season about your son, Jesus. God, may we not be anxious, may we not be timid, may we not be fearful, but with great joy, may we share the gospel knowing that you have come to save, and you are worthy of our worship. You are the one that every single person needs. So God, may we know that truth, embrace that truth, and proclaim that truth. Father, we praise you. Thank you for Christmas. In your name, Jesus, amen. Are going to.